0: Thank you so much for. That's really awesome. Cool strategy. Clap for the guy before he says anything. That way, that way you're in good shape either way. Uh, the first thing that I want you to hear me say is thank you. Thank you so very much for voting to invite us to be a part of this incredible uh, LCBC movement. Thank you so much for welcoming us the way that you have. Thank you from all of our campuses. All of our campuses have sent volunteers to Columbia Montour to help us learn our new systems and to onboard into this movement that we are now a part of. We are excited to be a part of what God is doing as a part of LCBC. The best is yet to come for all of us, and I want you to hear from all of us at Columbia Montour. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We are so excited to be a part of you. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'm pretty pumped to be able to share with you. You're going to want to take that Bible and open it up to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't get there on your smartphone, there is one next to you in the seat. It's page 798. And let me tell you a story on our way to that passage. Some of you that are in the business world are are going to know about this guy, but there is a guy by the name of Mike Cammie who is widely regarded as one of the most famous and best strategic planning consultants in the world, Mike Cammie, in fact, is the guy that's credited with the meteoric rise of companies like Xerox, Harley-Davidson, IBM, and in the mid-80s, the Coca-Cola company hired Mike to help them figure out what the future should look like for them. And so, on his first meeting with the executives at Coca-Cola, Mike Cammie showed up in the conference room, and he took a nice, big, red box and he placed it in the middle of the conference table and he said, you as the leaders of Coca-Cola have this incredible responsibility to figure out what the one thing is that defines Coca-Cola and you place that thing in the box Because it is from that thing that everything coca-cola will spring from that shared belief from that value from that defining thing is everything that is coke and so you can imagine this group of executives began debating. And they each had their research teams and they were each working on what that singular thing ought to be that would be placed in the box. And it took months of research and months of debating and months of vigorous discussions, what we would probably call crucial conversations. And then finally, after several months of trying to figure out what the one thing should be in the box, they decided that you know what, we sell soda, so maybe it ought to taste good. And so we want to, it sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? And I could have done it for half the price. (laughs) And that one thing became the thing that drove everything about Coca-Cola great. Taste, And so if that was going to be the future of the company, then these executives were given teams. They began to hire some of the best food scientists that they could find. They hired some of the best chemists that they could find. And they tasked those individuals with making sure that the product Coca-Cola was the best that it absolutely could ever be. And so they, they told these guys, if you can find something that tastes better We will reward you. And so these teams went to work and they fanned out across America and they began uh, uh, testing different recipes and different formulas. And lo and behold, one of those teams arrived at a recipe, arrived at a formula that 90% of Americans said, you know what? This new one tastes better than this one. 90% 90% of Americans said, we like this new thing better. They didn't know it was Old Coke, but it was what eventually would be Old Coke. And so the Coca-Cola executives were excited. Where We're geniuses. We have found a better product than the one that brought us here. 90% of the marketplace likes this product better, and so they designed everything about Coca-Cola, and some of you will remember this in the mid-80s, to launching New Coke. You remember New Coke? <laughs> Biggest marketing flop in the history of marketing flops. It lasted 79 days. They pulled it off the shelves. They reintroduced what they called classic Coke because that sounds a lot better than old Coke. <laughs> and they got back in their conference room and they got on a conference call with Mr. Cammie and they said, it didn't work. And this is why you want your children to grow up to be consultants, right? Because Cammie said, look, it wasn't the exercise. You did it wrong. And said, okay, well... We'll go back to the drawing board. And back to the drawing board they went. And they were trying to figure out who are we? I mean, obviously, it's 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 not about the formula, it's not about the it's not about the, the essence of the product. What is it about Coke that endears people to us? And as they worked that through, eventually they realized that what people appreciated about Coca-Cola was the fact that they are an American tradition. And so ever since that time in the mid-80s, when Coke tries to get your attention. They don't talk about their products. They don't talk about how people enjoy their products more than some other product. They try and sell you a good feeling. They try and sell you on the fact that they are an American institution, and so when you buy a Coca-Cola product, you are participating in Americana, and, the, and they moved forward in that fashion. That story came to mind a little while ago when I was sitting in a little coffee shop on Front Street in Berwick, talking to a friend of mine who was about my age, who had driven up in his brand new European import. He was telling me about his new 6,000 square foot home and the fact that even at his age, he was never gonna have to worry about working again. He had about a third or more of his life left and he was trying to figure out what this new awesome chapter should be about, but he was feeling empty and it confused him because he had accomplished everything he had set to accomplish. And so as we chatted about where he was and what he had accomplished about 45 minutes into the conversation, he said, I've just had this incredible realization. I have achieved every goal I've set out to achieve. And I've just realized I had all the wrong goals. I hit everything I aimed for, but I was aiming for the wrong stuff. He was saying, I had the wrong thing in the box. And so I wanna ask and answer with you in the next couple of minutes, what is in your box? And what should be in your box? Because there is nothing that is stronger than a, a gripping, personal mission. And so what is your mission? No individual, no organization will ever rise above their shared sense of mission. And the truth is, you're already good at this. You may not know that about yourself, but you're already good at this. You've already associated various names with a singular thing. And so we're going to play a game together as we get started now. And we're going to show you a company logo, and you're going to tell me the product that they deliver. And all of our campus are going to participate, and here's the cool thing: we're listening to see how each campus does, and the campuses that do the best, your staff is getting day- donuts from Delos in Berwick on Tuesday staff meeting. Everybody wants Delos donuts, and so you're actually playing for your staff. So do well, okay, Columbia Montour, counting on you. Here we go. First, it's Starbucks. What do they sell? Yes, perfect. Next, perfect. Yes. Yes. Late. (laughs) Those companies are so refined on who they are and what they do, They own a word in your mind. In fact, it's allergy season. 50% of us, when we sneeze, we no longer say, I need a tissue. We say, I need a Kleenex because they own a word in your mind. And so the question that burns is what is in your box? What is it about who you are and where you are and what God has has poured into you that defines everything about who you are as a person? And And the truth of the matter is, for right now, it doesn't matter to me whether or not you believe that Jesus was the Son of God. It doesn't matter to me if you believe that Jesus invaded earth from heaven on a hunt to pursue you with outrageous love of another kind. It doesn't really matter to me in this moment whether or not you believe that Jesus went to the cross to die for you and rose again, defeating death so that you could have new life in him. It doesn't matter to me right now if you buy all of that, but what I'm guessing we can all agree on is the fact that Jesus Christ was the most influential person that ever walked on planet earth we define our calendars by him everybody in every culture in one way or another knows about him and I would make the point to you that the reason for that is because Jesus Christ knew what he had in the box he knew why he was here and it enabled him to say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things to stay laser focused on his crystal clear understanding of his personal mission in life. It was a mission that was not only worth dying for, it was a mission that was worth living for, which is even harder. So chapters 18 and 19 of Luke kind of give Jesus an opportunity to explain to us what that personal mission was. And so he's surrounded by a group of guys who are kind of riding his coattails uh, all the way to the top. They were hoping that in their relationship with Jesus, they're going to find some new meaning. They're going to find new position. They're going to find new influence. And so Jesus, at this point in his life, while he's getting close to the time where he would die, they didn't really want to hear that, even though he shared that with them. They were more interested in the new influence that they thought they were going to have and at this point in Jesus' journey, they're on their way to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is where the big boys play. Jerusalem is where the game gets serious. and they were pumped about this because they want to walk with Jesus all the way to Jerusalem. And so they're on the road to Jerusalem. They're surrounding Jesus. He did. He never traveled without a press corps at this time in his life. And so they're walking toward, toward Jerusalem with Jesus, and they're kind of managing the people around him, keeping them on task, keeping them going, where with Jesus. We're the posse, we're gonna have the new positions. This is awesome. And then as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, this guy off to the side, this guy that would not be included in anyone's inner circle, this guy who had some physical disabilities, probably very, very poor, probably homeless, off to the side just starts calling over the sea of people between he and Jesus. Jesus, son of David! Have mercy on me. And the guys, Jesus' posse, the disciples, I mean, they actually turn to this guy and say, shut up, dude. We're busy here. We're on our way to the big time. This is not about you, big guy. Shh. We're moving. But Jesus stopped. And he walks over to this guy and he says, what can I do for you? The guy says, well, I'm blind. I'd like to see. Jesus says, okay, you can see, back on the road again, walking toward Jerusalem, another opportunity comes up. This time, it's it's with someone that we would call a, a mobster, an organized crime person, it was a tax collector in their day, and Jesus sees another opportunity to build a bridge, and he stops again. I can just imagine the guys around him getting really frustrated with him. Jesus, we've been working so hard to get it to the point where you have enough attention to get in the big game, and you're on your way to the big game, and you keep taking these off ramps. Would you stop it? Would you stay focused on the the game that we're on? And so Jesus at that point took the opportunity to clue his posse in on what he really had in his box. And on Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus shared with him the Son of Man has come to seek. I think you should circle that one, it simply means to hunt. He's on a hunt, and you know what hunting is like. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who, are, who, those who are lost. That's a personal mission of Jesus. That is the thing that he has in his box. He is hunting for people with outrageous love of another kind so that they can have a new beginning, so that they can be made new. And there's a very real sense in which we could just stop right there. I mean, it's a holiday weekend. David's away. We could get out early. But I got 19 minutes left. I'm using it. I mean, we 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 could just say Jesus was the most influential person that ever lived, and the reason he was the most influential person that ever lived is because he really knew what he had in the box. What he had in the box was hunting for people. Let's go home. But Jesus did something utterly amazing. Jesus did something that adds more value to your life than any other accomplishment that you could ever begin to dream about. Jesus actually took what was in his box and he did the unthinkable. Jesus took his mission, he took what was in his box, that thing that was most important to him, that thing that made him the most influential human in all of history, and he gave it, to you and me. He said, here, run with this. In John chapter 20, verse 21, the Bible says this. As the Father has sent me, it means in the same way the Father has sent me, circle it, I am, present tense, circle it, sending you. Here's my mission, here's what's made me so influential, here's the thing that drives me, here's the thing I'm all about, here you go, man. This is what you can put in your box. This is what can build your legacy. This is what can define your life. This is who you can be. You have a personal mission that transcends all of the worthwhile activities that you participate in. You're, just, you're not just a dad, you're not just a mom, you're not just a business guy or a business lady. You're not just a boss or an accountant or whatever that thing is that you are. You're not just the clubs that you are a part of. You are all of those things driven by A heart-level, personal mission that hunts for people with outrageous love of another kind, and that foundational mission defines who you are and builds your legacy to the point where it will never die. I don't know about you, but that sounds awesome, if only it were that easy, right? I mean, that's another place where we could land and go home. Jesus was the most influential person that ever lived. The reason he was is because he knew what he had in the box. He took what he had in the box and he gave it to us. And so now you're about hunting. Let's go home. But you're not leaving. So, okay, so we'll stay. <laughs> Problem is, it's not that easy. Problem is, that is the very thing that got Jesus in trouble with the church people. That's the very thing that got Jesus in trouble with the religious people. And I get this because believe me man, I am a recovering religious person. I know how this works. And religious people have this tendency to believe that the thing in the box is religion. And the thing that, the the mission is to get better at being religious. And so you do the right things at the right time and you polish yourself up and you do this when you're supposed to and the way that you're supposed to and you kinda judge the people who don't do it the way that you do and now you've nailed being religious and you can utterly consume yourself in that kind of a lifestyle and you can move forward like that with kind of a a, the bitter heart that it that it tends to incubate in people and Jesus is saying yeah not so much it's really not what I came for in fact I'm kind of the anti religion guy according to Jesus the thing that is in the box is rescue not religion According to Jesus, you and I have an opportunity to put in our box the mission that he entrusted to our care to define our everyday, regardless of the activities that we do, by going on an opportunity to rescue people who, are apart, who apart from Jesus, are fundamentally doomed. But the more that Jesus pursued rescue, the more in trouble he got with the religious establishment. Let me show you this, Luke Luke chapter 15, verses one and two. You are already there. Tax collectors, think of them as the mob or organized crime. It's exactly the same thing in their day. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners. Now, what comes to your mind when you think of notorious sinner? Right, me too, just don't say it out loud. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners circled this often, often came to listen to Jesus teach. That means this was not just kind of a once and done kind of thing. This isn't one of those things where, holy smokes, do you see who came to see Jesus today? Oh, my word. No, often. There was something about the way Jesus conducted himself that those people who did not fit for various reasons were attracted to him and they made a habit of showing up where Jesus was to listen to what he had to say, to build a relationship with him. And that's awesome because you cannot influence someone who is not in relationship with you. This, however, made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law, the church people if you will, complain, you know any church people that complain? I thought it was funny, (laughs) that he was associating with such circle it, sinful people, even eating with them. And in that culture, eating with someone meant that your relationship was more than just casual, you were buds. You were buds. And so Jesus, the guy who wanted us to have a full life, John 10, 10, I didn't come just to give you life, I came to give you full life, abundant life, rich life, is talking to a bunch of religious people and he's trying to teach them what rescued people are all about. He's trying to point to what should be in the box if they're going to enjoy a crazy, amazing life full of purpose and legacy. And the way that he teaches them is by telling them a couple of stories. That's what Jesus did. He was a storyteller. And so he actually tells them three stories and I want to start with the third one. It's the most famous one and then we'll look at the other two and we're going to do this very quickly. And so the, the first story you and I know is the story of the prodigal son, but Jesus didn't call it the story of the prodigal son. It was Jesus actually said there was a man with two sons and so it's actually the story of the man with Two sons, in fact, our misuse and misunderstanding of, of this prodigal has redefined the way we understand the word prodigal. Many times one of us will say to another one, you know, right now we have a prodigal, meaning our, we have a wayward kid. We've got, we've got one that's, that's out sowing not so good stuff, right? We're, we're going through a hard, that's not what prodigal means. Prodigal does not mean wayward. Prodigal means recklessly spendthrift. That means you spend everything you have with no regard for good judgment or what's coming down the pike. And in that case, in this, in this parable, it's not only true of the younger brother, which we'll see in a minute, it's also true of the father. And some of you know about recklessly spendthrift, right? I mean, some of you married recklessly spendthrift. That's just, I thought that was funny too. That's just the way, it's just the way it works for some of us. And so here's the way it goes, here's the way it goes in the story. This younger son is evaluating his life and he's trying to figure out, how am I going to have the kind of life that I really want to have? And as he thinks through this, he decides to have a conversation with his father. And he goes to his dad and he says, you know, dad, I've been thinking about my life and I've been thinking about where I am and the kind of things I want to accomplish. And I have decided that the best way for me to be able to accomplish the kind of life that I really want to have would be if you were dead. It's literally what he says. I would like to live the rest of my life as if you were dead. And so if it's okay with you, dad, I'd kind of like to cash in on my part of the family stuff here and hit the road. The utterly amazing thing is that this dad does it. He cashes in his life, and he divides it between his two boys. And literally, the Greek, where where the Bible says that he, he divided his bios, his life, not just his money, he cashed it all in. He gave his two sons their share of the inheritance, and the younger son, a couple of days later, he's got his wad of cash, he is walking away. And you know how that dad feels. There is nothing worse I can sense just a a tiny bit of it. I remember the day that we took all of our boys to college. I remember how that worked. I remember my oldest son, Jake, when he was going to college in Minnesota. We were living in Berwick. We borrowed my dad's pickup truck. We loaded all of his junk on there, and, and, and we head out Route 80 going all the way to Minnesota. 19 hours of driving. Every hour, the knot in my stomach is getting tighter because I know at the end of this journey there's gonna be that awkward hug that I'm not gonna want to let go of and that kiss on the cheek if there's not a lot of other linebackers around and and then we're going to have to say goodbye, and I'm going to have to get back in the truck, and Brent and I are going to have to do this journey all the way home again, and by the time we get there, it's football check-in, football camp check-in, and so whatever runs through your mind about how football check-in goes is probably true, and and so we take all of his stuff up the flight of stairs, we set up his dorm room, we meet his roommate who was, all, was in the linebacker section, and, and so we meet his roommate's parents, and 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 then we had done everything we went there to do, and now there that awkward time. Do we just leave, do we hang out, do we, no, let's just go. And so I said, okay, we're done, we're gonna go. I gave Jake a big hug and I put him down and I walked away. While I was walking away, my bride was giving me the look. Ladies, you know what that's like, right? So she hadn't seen this quite this way. And she gives Jake a hug, and then I remember walking down that dorm hallway as if it happened this morning. We went down the stairs, I don't know why we didn't do the elevator, we went out the front door, we got in my dad's truck, and we sat there and I started bawling. I cried like a man. Actually, that's not true. I cried like a constipated sumo wrestler. It was terrible. Brenda cried like a woman, you know, it was like a dainty cry. I'm not a dainty crier, man. I, my shoulders are shaking, and and I say I can't drive away. I can't go. I'm not gonna go. I can't drive. I can't let him here. We're not gonna let him here. And I'm hoping he's not looking out his dorm window at, at his mom and dad sitting in the truck. I kid you not. We're we're we're, we're sitting in that truck for ten or fifteen minutes until I could muster up the courage to drive off the parking lot. We cried all the way through Wisconsin, through Indiana, into Ohio. We would lay our head down at bed at night and, and I would say, gee, how do, you, how do you think Jake's doing? I wonder what he's doing, I hope he's making some friends. I hope they're not hazing him. I mean, this is football camp. If they're hazing him, I hope he remembers thump therapy, because." That'll work, I mean, that'll back him up. And Well, I hope he's making some good friends, and so was just constantly praying for him, and, and then I'd say to Brent, you know, you think Jake's sleeping? And Bren would just say, well, I'm sure we're not sleeping, and, and, and so, you know, by morning you'd wake up again, and the first thing on your mind is, gosh, I wonder how he's doing, I wonder what he's having for breakfast, I hope he's making some good friends, I wonder how he's doing at camp, I, I, hope, he's, he, I hope it's fun for him. I, Gosh, it was just never more than a moment from your mind. And here is a dad whose son has said, you know what, dad, thanks for everything, dude, but my life would be better if you were dead. So how about my stuff, and I'm out of here, man. You know that that dad, every moment, is thinking, I wonder where he is, I wonder what he's doing, I hope he's okay, I wonder what's going on with, oh, how is he investing the resources, how is he taking care of himself? And you know what he did, right? Hookers, drugs, alcohol, parties, it's all gone. I mean, he fritters away the resources that it took his father decades to accumulate, to entrust to his care, ends up homeless without a job. The only gig he can get is taking care of some pigs and the fringe benefit was you get to live with them, hanging around in a pig slot. And so all of a sudden this kid gets a realization when he's wallowing in pig slop with these pigs, you know what, the guys who work for what is now my brother's business have a far better life than this. I could never ever ask my family to take me back again, but I, I, I just wonder what do I have to lose if I show up and just ask, you know, can I have a job with the business? Can I live with the hired help? At least, at least I'll get three squares and a cot. And so he leaves his pig tending job and he heads home and he's working through the speech in his head, right? How, what is he going to say to his dad? How is he going to navigate this? You've got to be really careful what you say to the guy that the last time you saw him, you told him your life, would be better if he were dead. So he turns down his lane and he's walking toward his home and before he can solidify in his mind the speech that he wants to give to his dad, this old dude in a dress is running toward him and he picks him up in a huge bear hug and this kid smells like pig crap. And he hasn't bathed in who knows how long. And the dad doesn't care. My boy is home. My son is here. Best sandals, best robe, big party. This is awesome. Before he could even get part of his speech out. Because that's what a dad does. That's what a dad does. Until there's a lot of stuff that you could, you know, you could take from this This parable. One is, if you're old and you're wearing a dress and you're a dude, don't run. (laughs) Another one is, you know, if you're here and you're not sure you buy the whole Jesus thing and and you're really kind of thinking that the junk from your past is really kind of too much for Jesus to absorb and wipe clean and make you new because you've done this to that person or those things to those people or you've thought or whatever. Yeah, you're wrong about that. It's cool, Jesus can wipe that completely clean. You know, that, that's one good application, but it's not the point that Jesus is making and telling the story. There's, there's another application you could make that's equally accurate, and, and that would be, you know what, God loves you with outrageous love of another kind, but that never really melts our hearts, right? Because that's what God's supposed to do. I mean, God is love, right? And so you tell somebody, you know, God loves you, and they think, well, that's what God does. It's no big deal, right? I mean, he loves everybody. It's not quite that easy, though, because what the truth of the parable is, even though this is not really the point that, 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 uh, that Jesus is making, is that God knows you intimately. He knows every thought that you have, every micro thought that you have. He knows your computer browsing history. He knows every thought that drives everything about you and he loves you anyway. That's a little different. I mean, if you knew me the way God knows me, you would not listen to me preach. No way. You would be grossed out and hit the parking lot. But don't get too uppity. If I knew you the way God knows you, I wouldn't talk to you. It's just what's true about us. But that's not really the point that Jesus is trying to make either. There's also the point that the older brother, the one that kind of he's tying as the religious guy, is kind of a self-absorbed, a uh, cocky, overconfident, performance-driven, knuckle-headed nene, probably a Dallas Cowboy fan. Yeah, you will never see me again. That's also not the point that Jesus is trying to make. There is a larger point. Remember that Jesus actually told three stories. First story is a guy with 100 sheep, one of the sheep gets lost, he leaves the 99, he goes on an aggressive hunt to find the one sheep that's lost, he finds the sheep that's lost, he brings it home, he is pumped, he calls his, friend together, his friends together and he holds a huge party. I lost a sheep but I found it and now we're going to party, I found my lost sheep. Second story is a lady who's got some money, she loses one of the coins, she turns her house upside down trying to find the lost coin, I've got to get the lost coin. She finds the lost coin, she calls her friends together, she has a huge party I lost a coin but I found my coin this is awesome third story the story of the father with the two sons something of value is lost something of value comes back there's a huge party what is the singular difference between the three stories Jesus is talking to the seminary grads of the day Jesus is talking to the guys who knew better they're looking for the difference in the three stories there's only one difference in every story something of value is lost in the first two stories is a massive hunt to get it before the celebration of its return. In the third story, Jesus sets it up so these church people are saying, wait a minute, who's supposed to hunt for the kid? Oh, that's us. Hmm. Jesus' point is to say to these church people, you got the wrong thing in the box, dude because the mission is not religion, the mission is rescue. And he's inviting them to be about rescue. So let me ask you a question. Really, what's in your box? Not what do you wish was in the box, not what should be in the box, what is really in your box what is that thing that drives everything about you there's a singular value and it drives everything about you it is your box for you what is in the box nothing matters more and so let me get up in your grill for for just a minute and we'll be finished can i invite you to make your life about rescue? Can I invite you to adopt a value for your box that will give to you an opportunity to build a legacy that is so much bigger than the life that you have, so much bigger than any other accomplishment that you could ever amass? Can I invite you to make your life about rescue if you're in Christ? Because here's the truth. If you're in Christ and your life is not about rescue, you're living a much smaller life than Jesus died to give you. You need to swallow that and so do I. If you're in Christ and you're living a life that is not about rescue, then you are living a life that is much smaller then Jesus died to give you. I mean, sometimes in the midst of having it all, we we can forget that rescue, it, it doesn't really come down to great bands and awesome environments. And God has entrusted to L C B C some of the 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 most incredibly talented, insightful leaders in our whole generation. And rescue doesn't really come down to us having those leaders. Rescue doesn't come down to incredibly gifted people doing incredibly cool things. At the end of the day, rescue comes down to what you and I put in our box. And those great leaders and those talented people and this incredible movement that we're all a part of, all those things help. But if you and I try and live a life apart from rescue in the box, then you and I will live a life so much smaller than Jesus died to give us. So what's in your box? Can I just invite you? If you're not in Christ, maybe today's your day. Just tell him, he'll take your mess. The Bible says he'll make you brand new. You can tell them. Doesn't matter how you say it, just tell them. And if you're in Christ, will you join me in waking up every morning and defining that day by how you will build bridges to people who are doomed apart from Jesus. That guy who mows when you mow, build a bridge. That neighbor lady with the cat that you wish would run away, because that's really the best thing any cat could do. Invite her. Let the cat out while she's here. <laughs> a dude at the gym that's always looking at himself in the mirror, you know? You know why he does that? He's insecure. He needs Jesus. Invite him. Build a bridge. Build a bridge, that dude across from you at work, at the lunch table, build a bridge. Build a bridge will add more meaning and joy and purpose to your life than any other accomplishment that you could amass. Rescued people, rescue people. Father, we love you. Thank you for pursuing us with outrageous love of another kind Thank you, Father, for entrusting us with this incredible, life-defining mission. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity that we have to define our lives by the mission that you've entrusted to our care. Thank you for loving us with outrageous love and trusting us with rescue for those people for whom you have died. We love you, Father, and we pray that you will... Help us to find the bravery necessary to simply build a bridge and invite. Amen.